The following lecture was delivered at the 16th Annual National Jewish Retreat in Miami, Florida, a project of the Rohr Jewish Learning Institute. We hope you enjoy it. We encourage you to visit jretreat.com for information on upcoming retreats. Rabbi Moshe Brisky now presents his lecture, Calling All Heroes. You know, as kids growing up, Many of us were fascinated by superheroes, whether they were from television or the comic books. It's Superman and Batman and Spider-Man, Wonder Woman for some, Captain America, Dick Tracy. Remember Dick Tracy used to have the, the, the watch that he can actually like, communicate with? We, we all have that now. Oh, my all-time favorite, Popeye. We've all had our favorite superheroes, and they each had their own superpowers. Who among us didn't dream about leaping tall buildings in a single bound, or going through the streets of Gotham in this Batmobile with all the cool gadgets? It was great to fantasize about having those special powers which you could just swoop down and save people in distress or save the entire planet. And then at some point, unfortunately, we grow up and we realize that all those cool fantasies are just fantasies. There is no Superman who can fly up in the sky and stop bombers in flight. And there's no Batman who can beat up a thousand bad guys at one time. And Wonder Woman is not coming to rescue you. So if that's the case, who's going to save the world? Where can we find some real heroes? Well, for one thing, there are, in fact, all types of real-life heroes among us. You look at the incredible courage and the sacrifice of police officers and firefighters and first responders and nurses and members of the military who literally devote their lives to helping and protecting and saving others, putting their lives at great risk. So there are real life heroes out there in America and Israel and all over the world. People who display real courage and humility and sacrifice and integrity and compassion, devotion, loyalty to something greater than themselves people deserving of our utmost gratitude and respect. U.S. Navy Admiral William McRaven recently wrote a book. The book is called The Hero Code. And he has a theory as to why we all tend to be so enamored by heroes. And I think he's right. He suggests that there is a hero gene within all of us. There's something in the human soul, something in our DNA that has us wanting to do heroic things, to nurture lives, to save lives, to inspire people, to make people happy, things that make a real difference. Now, it's true that for some people, manifesting and giving expression to their inner hero comes a lot more easily and naturally than for the rest of us. But make no mistake, we all have that within us. 
So how do we tap into it? How do we bring it forth, our own inner hero? Well, step one, when we see or hear about people who act heroically, we should try to mirror some of that behavior in our own lives, even in a small way. And of course, for us as Jews, Jewish history is replete with heroic figures, from Abraham to Moses, Miriam to Devorah, from King David to Judah the Maccabee, Mordechai and Esther, Rabbi Akiva the Baal Shem Tov, to all the great Rebbes and Torah scholars with many thousands in between. And we glorify these individuals. We put them on the pedestal. Why? Because the idea of trying to take something of what these people had and make it part of ourselves inspires us to be better. What's so impressive about our holy heroes is that they didn't lead or teach for personal gain. They weren't into it for the fame. Our humble giants were driven by their knowledge and their love to share their gifts with the world. And in doing so, they held nothing back. Whatever greatness they had, they brought it out to the field for the rest of us to benefit from. Well, we all have our own unique gifts, our own innate greatness. And while we may not be able to come close to the heights achieved by those giants, we can be inspired by their character, by their ethics, by their actions to hold nothing back and to try to put our own special gifts out there and share them with the world. When you look at the focus and the approach and the impact of the Lubavitcher Rebbe's leadership, and you realize that it was never about his heroism, but the heroism towards which he can inspire others. He tried to find the hero within you and bring it out so that others would benefit from you. One of the Rebbe's favorite initiatives was a program called Tzivos Hashem. Tzivos Hashem is translated the army of God, whereby children could rise in the ranks of the army, from private to sergeant to lieutenant to one-star general, two-star general, five-star generals. And how did we rise up the ranks? We studied verses of Torah by heart. We performed mitzvahs, good deeds, kind acts. And each time we did that, we went up a rank. And by framing these things in the terms of military heroism, the Rebbe gave the children this deep sense of pride in the privilege and the responsibility that comes with them being a Jew. And he told them, the children, he would have special rallies just for kids that you're on a special mission. You're here to combat darkness, to model goodness. You can change the world. Imagine the leader of world jewelry packed in a room with thousands, just kids. The adults had to stay out of the room, just kids. And he would talk to the children about, you're in the army. Rise up a rank, the world needs you. And these kids, we had these caps, these army caps on. We had these uniforms. We were the heroes of the community. And they still are. The program still goes on today. Back then at, at public gatherings at Fabrengans, a lot of the kids would gather around the Rebbe's chair. If you see the pictures of the Fabrengan, you see mostly senior citizens sitting behind the Rebbe. 
and you see the Rebbe sitting at a table. Well, underneath that table were kids. They, they would sit literally by the Rebbe's feet, but they had a good spot. They were close. Now, during one gathering, the kids started getting a bit rowdy under there and a little bit restless, and you can hear noise coming from underneath the table. So one of the seniors that are sitting behind the Rebbe like, goes over to underneath the table to try to quiet the kids down. And the Rebbe turns to this elder and says, you're just a civilian. They're officers. You can't chase them away. That's education. That's wisdom. That's how you cultivate heroes. So you may ask, what happened to those kids? Whatever happened to all those little soldiers of the army of Hashem, of Tzivos Hashem, where are they today? I'll tell you where they are. They're all over the world. Thousands of them have spread forth to every corner of the world and opened Chabad centers to bring Jews back to their roots, to help them with their issues, to illuminate the world with Torah and with goodness. He raised children who he taught to become heroes, to go out there in the world. You see, from being soldiers in Tzivos Hashem, the Rebbe's program encouraged us to continue doing outreach work as teenagers and then as rabbinical students so that this would become life's mission. The message being, don't just aspire to be a hero yourself. Bring out the hero in your Jewish brothers and sisters, whoever they may be and wherever they may be. Another message the Rebbe sought to convey to all of his followers, whether they could make Jewish education and outreach their full-time occupation or not, was don't underestimate the infinite value of a single mitzvah performed by a single Jew. Don't think one doesn't matter. One Jew, one mitzvah changes the world. And so when you help facilitate the Jewish observance of one mitzvah for one Jew, you cannot begin to know the long-term impact that you'll have not only on this person's life, but on the entire world. Because all small acts the Rebbe taught us has cosmic implications. There's a Chabadnik who understood this very well. It was a man by the name of Yitzchak Nemes. He lives in Crown Heights in Brooklyn. He was a dealer in rear postage stamps by profession. And he would often go to stamp shows where he would display his collection. There was a fellow stamp dealer at these shows, an elderly Jewish gentleman. His name was Robert Trankel. Their booths were often right next to each other, so they became friends, each one selling their goods, their rear stamps. And during these conversations that they would have, they would often discuss Jewish topics. And Yitzchak would try to open up Robert's hearts and mind towards Yiddishkeit, towards more Jewish observance. One day in the early 1980s, Mr. Trankel traveled with his wife to Brussels, Belgium. There was a big stamp show there. He's in Brussels, sadly and tragically, they were in a car accident. And his wife, Mrs. Trankel, lost her life. Robert returned home to Riverdale, New York, a broken man. And he fell into a depression over the loss of his wife. And in the weeks that follow, this friend, Yitzchak Nemes, would visit him often. 
and try to lift his spirits, you got to go back to work. You got to rebuild your life. You can't stay like this. And over time, the two became very, very close. During one of his visits, Yitzchak put forth this idea. He said, Robert, when your wife was alive, she prepared your meals for you. And you ate whatever she served. But now that you have to do your own cooking, perhaps it's going to be a good time for you to think about starting to keep kosher. In the merit of the soul of your wife, kosher your kitchen and start keeping kosher. At first, Robert seemed a little bit interested, and then he said, nah, nah, it's going to be too difficult for me. Life is too difficult as it is. I don't need to take on anything new. So Yitzchak said to him, what if I would personally deliver kosher meals for the week, every week? If I brought you kosher dinners, it's hard for you to cook anyway, and this way, your meals will be prepared and will be kosher. He says, that could work, but I don't want to bother you. You live in Crown Heights, Brooklyn. Yeah, schlep out here every week. He said, it'll be my honor. It'll be my privilege. Please, let me do it. And he said, okay. A few days later, Yitzchak sends over a friend to kosher Mr. Trankel's kitchen. Now that he's going to be keeping kosher, they kosher the kitchen. And that Thursday evening, Yitzchak took the subway to a place called Schreiber's. At that time, it was the main kosher frozen food company in New York. And he orders seven kosher meals. And he places the order that every Thursday there should be waiting for him seven kosher meals. He takes the prepackaged dinners and he makes his way to his friend Trankel's house. Robert opens the door and he's shocked to see his friend is really there with shopping bags filled with seven kosher dinners. Amazing. He doesn't think this is going to continue like every week. But to Nemes, this was important. The following Thursday night, Yitzchak Nemes is there again, seven prepackaged dinners. He continued this practice, not for weeks, not for months, but for years. Arriving back home in Crown Heights at 11 p.m. Thursday night because he needed to do his mitzvah of bringing one mitzvah to one Jew. Every so often, Robert would protest and say, Yitzchak, I know how difficult this is to you coming here every week. Maybe you want to stop. And Yitzchak said, you have no idea what this does for me for the whole week. I feel so good. The truth is that it did cost him quite a bit of time. It was a big sacrifice to give up every Thursday evening, literally for years. And the expense as well. He wouldn't take any money from his friends, so he would be paying for this. But for the opportunity to bring a mitzvah to a fellow Jew, for him, it was the greatest feeling in the world. Let's fast forward. Years have passed. Robert Trankel had passed away. Let's go fast forward. There's a knock on the door at the Nemes residence. Mrs. Zelda Nemes, his wife, Yitzchak's wife, opens the door and sees a college kid there. Hello, my name is Steve Trankel. I'm a student at the University of Pennsylvania. I came here because I wanted to meet the family that fed my grandfather's dog for all those years. 
And Zelda wasn't sure that she heard correctly what he said. You mean your grandfather for all those years? No, 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 no. My grandfather's dog. Weren't you the one that sent those kosher food packages to Robert Trenkel every week? She said, yeah, that was my husband. My husband did that. I'm the grandson of Robert Trenkel. Those kosher dinners were way too salty for him. But Grandpa didn't want to make you guys feel bad. So every week after your husband dropped off the food, he would take the meal and feed it to his dog. And his dog loved them. Now imagine you're Zelda. She's trying to keep a polite smile on her face. But she begins thinking to all the Thursday nights that her husband took a subway, that went to Schreiber's, that paid for seven meals, then slept to Riverdale. And in New York weather, in the winter, it could be quite cold. In the summer, it can be quite hot. After a full day's work, never home on a Thursday because he's bringing kosher food to Robert Trankel. It's his mitzvah. All the evenings that he gave up to benefit another Jew for what? To feed a dog kosher food? Does your dog keep Shabbos too? <laughs> Mrs. Nemes is playing all this out in her head. And then the young man continues. You know, to think that someone would go through all of that for another person. I've always found it unbelievable. It's always been on my mind. Who are these people? Why would they do this? I was so impressed by the dedication to your beliefs that I came here to learn more about who you are, what you represent, who I am, and whom I ought to be. From that point, Steve Trankel became a regular visitor to Crown Heights and to the Nemes home. And to make a long story short, the kosher food that Yitzhak Nemes so lovingly schlepped to Riverdale maybe did not make it to Robert Trankel's mouth, but it paved the way for his grandson's journey to his heritage and to his roots. And today, Steve, who goes by Shimon, Shimon Trankel lives a fully Torah-observant life in Israel. He and his wife are raising an entire generation of engaged Jews, all thanks to the food that was fed to his grandfather's dog. <laughs> the point, my friends, is that no mitzvah ever goes to waste. Even if it didn't accomplish what you had hoped, what you had expected, even if the whole exercise seemed pointless or meaningless at the time, every act of goodness performed since the beginning of time remains embedded within the world and continues to work its magic and shine its light across the divides in space. It never goes away. It has forever changed the world. There was a science teacher in a Jewish girls' school we'll call her Mrs. Horowitz, who loved showing her students the connection between Torah and science and developing this relationship between the two to show that they don't contradict. And she would always show attention to each student individually. And at the end of the year, she was known for not just giving out the report cards, but she would write a note on stationery, on her own stationery, to each student. 
And to each student, she would say something different. It would take quite a long time to write individual notes for each student. And her husband would often say, don't you think it's a waste of time? Does it really matter so much? And she would say, for her, it's important. And they would have this interchange every year, her and her husband. And sometimes Mrs. Horowitz would wonder if these notes were having any effect. And maybe it is a waste of time. Years later, a letter arrives at the Horowitz home that settled the issue. It was from a former student who wrote as follows. Dear Mrs. Horowitz, at the end of the year, you wrote each girl a note and stapled it to our report cards. I remember opening that envelope and reading what you had taken the time to write to me. Incredibly, every girl in the class felt the same way I did. We all thought, wow, this is so personalized. I bet no one else's letter is as special as mine. I kept that little pink envelope with me all throughout high school and all throughout seminary, and any time I needed a boost of confidence, I would open it up and read what you wrote to me. This is what your note said. Dear Rachel, I get so excited when I think of the tremendous potential you were blessed with. Please continue to use your special talents towards your learning and growing in your mitzvot and good character traits. Don't be satisfied with mediocrity. Be the best you can be and go for the gold. The student went on to write that years later she was in a terrible accident. And for eight months, she went through this long recovery process that required her to lie on her back at all times. Just breathing caused her tremendous pain. Every hour seemed to crawl by and it took tremendous effort to pull through. How did I make it through, she writes to her former teacher. Each morning, I read your note, and that message gave me the confidence to get through the day. The student's letter continued, Mrs. Horowitz, you changed my life. As a teacher now myself, I sometimes wonder to what extent I am making a difference in my student's life. Let me assure you, you have no idea what a profound impact you can make on a student. It's eight years later, and your ripple effects are still inspiring me. I have no words that I can say to thank you because your 49 words that you took the time to write to me changed my life. And now hopefully I am changing the lives of my students. When we think of heroes and we think of heroism, stop thinking about this great warrior it doesn't have to be the firefighter that goes into a fire and risks his life. It doesn't have to be the soldier. It doesn't have to be the greatest rabbi in the world. It doesn't have to come in moments of extraordinary valor. For most people, it comes in day-to-day -day acts of giving, building upon themselves over time, and becoming something remarkable. The mom who holds down a job and somehow finds the energy to come home and give her whole heart to her children. That's a hero. The dad who coaches kids' basketball team or goes out of his way to mentor other kids in the community who don't have a father figure in their lives. That's being a hero. The teacher who gives extra attention to those struggling in his or her class. That's being a hero. The adult child who looks after aging or ailing parents or visits their grandparents. That's heroic. The friend who's there for another who needs a caring heart and a supportive shoulder, 
These are the heroes we need today more than anything else. What makes these acts of devotion and sacrifice all the more heroic is that there's no adoring crowds to thank you. There's no parades going down Fifth Avenue. There's no medals of honor being pinned on your lapel. The only prize you get is the satisfaction of knowing that your actions are noble, perform with no expectations of anything in return. But even so, when you'll get to see it in your lifetime or not, rest assured that one day or another, one way or another, your heroism will work its magic. Years ago, there was a woman by the name of Claire Schneider. Claire had been single for many years. And she came to terms with the realities that she would probably not get married in her life. And she would never mother a child. When her twin sister Adele lost her husband, Claire moved in with her to help her raise her young son during that difficult time. And she felt this deep void in her heart. She yearned to have a child of her own. After much thought, she decided she's going to retire early and she's going to foster a child. But not a typical child. She specifically wanted to raise a child with a disability or special needs. One day, Claire heard of a baby boy with spina bifida who had been born to a Hasidic family in New York. Now, in those days, children with disabilities were viewed in certain communities, sadly and tragically, as a source of embarrassment for the family. There was a stigma attached to having a child with such conditions. And as such, many parents would try to hide their children with special needs, or put them in institutions, or offer them up for foster care. So when Rabbi Avram Freund's son, Raphael, was born with spina bifida, he and his wife were worried that this would tarnish the family's reputation. And so they sought a religious home to care for him. That's when Claire Schneider stepped up. She took the little baby straight from the hospital, and she treated him as if he was her own child, lavishing him with all the love and attention that had laid dormant within her for so many years. All through her own, although her own religious background was more of a Litvish, a more Lithuanian tradition, she was very sensitive to the fact that this boy came from a Hasidic home. And she would often consult with Rabbi Freund about how he wanted his son raised, the kosher standards that he would want, the hashkacha that he would want. And when it was time for his upshernish, his first haircut at the age of three, she invited Rabbi Freund to take the first snip, left the payas on the side, just like Rabbi Freund's other children. Throughout all those years, Claire would carry Raphael up and down three flights of steps. Her apartment building didn't have an elevator. Far from being ashamed, she proudly took him wherever she went, adoring him for the blessing that he was to the world. And she cared for him joyfully, bringing him to therapy appointments and doctor appointments, determined to make him as high-functioning as possible. She did everything that she can possibly do to help him learn, to help him grow. When Raphael turned seven years old, the Freunds made this bold decision. Enough of this. 
we're bringing our boy home. When Claire at first was sad to part with the child she had come to love, she knew that this was the right thing for Raphael and the right thing for his parents. Indeed, the Freunds affectionately cared for their son until he passed away at the young age of 16 due to his medical condition. When Claire Schneider passed away in June of 2013, Rabbi Avram Freund got up to speak at her funeral. And he shared the following. One would think that Claire Schneider left this world without any children. In reality, though, when she gets to heaven, she will realize that she has many children, hundreds of children, thousands of children. The people at the funeral were confused. What's Rabbi Freund talking about? So he explained. For many years, it was very difficult for people in our community to come to terms with having a child with special needs. Everyone was hyper-concerned about the family's reputation. Will the other siblings find a shidduch? Will they be able to get married? And who will want to marry into this family? That's all that was on our minds. When our Rafal was born, we too, we were like that. We were ashamed of his disability. Along comes Claire Schneider, who not just shamelessly, but proudly took this boy out in public, loved him despite his disabilities. And after seven years, we felt we must do the same. So let me tell you what happened. The first Shabbos after we brought Raphael home, I kept my eye on the clock. Services in our huge synagogue in Williamsburg start at 9.30 a.m. I was always there first on time. But not that Shabbos. No, I waited. 9.30, 9.35, 9.40, 9.45. I waited till 10 o'clock because I knew by 10 the shul would be packed, that everyone would be there. I then wheeled my Raphael to the synagogue. Upon arriving, I lifted my son in my arms and I carried him from the main door in the very back of the shul. My seat was in the front, so I wanted everyone to see me carrying my son. I carried my son the way I would carry a Sefer Torah with that love, with that tenderness, until I reached the front of the shul and I sat down with my Raphael. I wanted everyone to see my beautiful son. I wanted everyone to see how proud I was that I was his father, that I would never be embarrassed about his existence again. And you know what happened? After the services, 20 or so children from the community came up and they gathered around Raphael to meet him, to speak to him, to become his friend. A week later, a friend of mine whose wife had just given birth to a little girl with Down syndrome told me that seeing me with my son gave him the courage to bring his daughter home from the hospital instead of giving her up to a foster home. In the weeks thereafter, a strange thing started to happen in our shul. Children we never knew existed started showing up in shul. Children with Down syndrome and with autism and with cerebral palsy, all these kids we never knew existed because they were hidden away for years. 
Suddenly, parents were willing to acknowledge the existence of these special children. And they brought their children out of the woodwork, allowing them to become part of the community, to answer amen, to sit in a Shabbos group, to be part of things. Stigmatized. What stigmatized? These children became embraced and in love. And I want everyone here to know, the rabbi continued, this is all because of one woman named Claire Schneider. She enabled me to come to terms with my son's disabilities and gave me the courage to bring him to shul, which served as an impetus for all these other families to accept their children for who they are. All these lives were changed because of her. And it goes beyond that, he went on to say. As these children, including my late son, were suddenly appearing on the scene, I realized that they couldn't receive a Jewish education in the regular institutions that we have because they weren't equipped for all these sorts of issues. So I was determined to do something about it, and I started a new school called Shari Chemla for children with disabilities. And by now, years later, hundreds of children have passed through the doors of this school. And it's all because of one woman named Claire Schneider. Claire Schneider did not leave this world childless at all. All these children who have benefited and continue to benefit from this school is Claire's children's. They're all her children. One woman, one child, one series of actions in, in, in Williamsburg, and the world has changed. It's not mere poetry when our sages say, save a life and you've saved the world. Change a life and you begin to change the world. Simple mitzvot and acts of kindness can have immeasurable effects for all time to come. Do you think at the time Claire Schneider, this kind, modest, and unassuming woman, had the slightest inkling that her impulse to unconditionally love a child would come to impact the lives of hundreds upon hundreds of special needs children for generations to come? That's not what she was thinking. She just wanted to do her mitzvah. And the world is a different world because of it. That's a hero. That's a hero we can all be in our own way. Indeed, some of our greatest heroes have been unlikely heroes. You read about the lives of Oscar Schindler, or Chiyun Sugihara, or Irina Sendler, and many like them who bravely and righteously saved the lives of thousands of Jews during the Holocaust. They were the most unlikeliest of heroes. Before those events, they led rather nondescript, unremarkable lives. But when their moment came, they seized it and they stepped up to it with courage and convictions to save lives and to save worlds, to have impacts that would multiply itself hundreds of thousands of times over. As Jews, our inner hero is constantly being summoned. Sooner or later, we all find ourselves facing situations where we can either stand tall and be proud proud of our ideals, our identity, or we can shrink into the background. Today, as much as ever, the Jewish people need heroes. We need heroes with the spine and the backbone and the courage to stand up for the principles we hold dear, principles the world depends upon. We need heroes who will stand up against anti-Semitism wherever and whatever it rears its ugly head. We need heroes who will stand up unapologetically for Israel's right to exist and defend itself against bloodthirsty enemies 
who use innocent men, women, and children as human shields in carrying out their terrorist attacks. We need modern-day Maccabees ready to bring light to where there is darkness, without fear or intimidation. We're all presented with these opportunities to be heroic Jews. When that happens, we need to rise to the occasion. Last year, when Hamas was launching rockets from Gaza into Israel's population centers, and of course Israel was banned a villain, we saw this large uptick in anti-Semitic attacks against Jews in major cities around the world, including right here in the United States. Many communities held public gatherings to show solidarity with Israel and to protest against anti-Semitism. At one such gathering attended by 25,000 people in Manhattan, there was this writer at the time from the New York Times who since resigned from being an editor in the New York Times. Her name was Barry Weiss. She gave a very powerful speech at that rally, and if you didn't see it, you should find it on YouTube. It was entitled, I Am a Jew. And among the powerful lines she said in that speech, I quote, the Jewish people were not put on earth to be anti-anti-Semites. We are put on earth to be Jews. We are the lamplighters. Israel lives now and forever. Am Yisrael Chai. And she's right, fighting anti-Semitism is not what we're all about. Unfortunately, it's a tragic byproduct of our mission, but it's not the mission itself. The mission is for us to faithfully live elevated in accordance with the Torah and the truth within it, and to serve as a light unto the nations. That's why it's so ludicrous and preposterous to once again hear so-called prominent Jewish leaders coming up with some of these strange responses to the waves of anti-Semitic attacks of recent months. One such leader put on Twitter, it pains me to say this, but if you fear for your physical safety, take off your kippah and hide your mugging David. Really, in America, in 2022, we're telling Jews, take off your kippah, hide your high necklace. That's not heroic. Stand up, be proud. Speak up. Remember, last summer was around the time, uh, right before the JLI retreat last year in Atlanta, the world of, of sports, perhaps, and the Jewish world of sports were, were uh, proud that two young guys were drafted in the baseball draft, two young Orthodox Jewish players. In the same draft, it was uh, Jacob Steinmetz from New York was selected by the Arizona Diamondbacks, and Ellie Kliegman from Las Vegas was drafted by the Washington Nationals. And Ellie Kliegman came last year to the JLI retreat in Atlanta. Some of you that were here maybe remember him speaking over here. How proud he was to be Jewish, observant, keep Shabbos, and try to be a Major League Baseball player. And he didn't find it as a conflict in any type of way. That's heroic of a kid. I keep Shabbos, I keep kosher, I love baseball, I'm gonna to try to do it all together. I'm not giving up my traditions and my ways for my career. How does this happen? It happens when we have priorities, when we put priorities in our life. You know, as disturbing, as upsetting as the upticks in anti-Semitism may be, and they are when it comes to Jewish survival and continuity, the statistical threat to our existence from outside pales in comparison to the damage and destruction we inflict upon ourselves.
we're one nation, we're one family, and we cannot afford to lose even a single Jewish child, let alone a generation of Jews, to casual indifference, to ignorance, and to drop off from Jewish life. We can't continue to watch our Jewish family hemorrhage as we assimilate and intermarry out of existence, God forbid. So what would happen in the Batman series when the police commissioner of Gotham would need Batman to come to the rescue? He would shine the bat signal into the sky and put out the call, calling Batman. So today we need to put out the call calling all heroes. We need each and every one of you to be that hero, to stand up for Yiddishkeit, stand up for Judaism, to reach out to your fellow, to bring them in, to invite them in. There's this tendency to think that Judaism and spirituality primarily happens in Jewish schools and in synagogues and in study halls. And the home is for sleeping and eating and recreation and entertainment. We think that God is found primarily in religious settings, but in reality, if we want to build a stairway to heaven, if we want to give our children access to ideals higher than material wants and needs, we need to bring God into the homes, and it needs to be in the home of each and every single Jew. And we need to bring God back into the conversations at home, sitting around the Shabbat table, celebrating our age-old values and traditions. You know, when we think about the generations that came before us, I know we often find ourselves at a loss. We wonder if there's anything in our character that could compare to the generations of past. We think of the wisdom of our parents and our grandparents and our great-grandparents. But the bottom line is, it is up to us now. It's up to me and you. And as history has proven that when you live your life with this the covenant that God forged with our ancestors thousands of years ago, something extraordinary happens. Your parents and your grandparents and your grandparents, great-grandparents, they live on within you. You feel their strength. So you're really this midget, but you're on the shoulder of giants. Don't underestimate your influence. Don't underestimate the impact you can have. Don't underestimate the hero within you. You know, there was a song by the great Moshe, yes. His son, son sang here last year at the retreat. One of his greatest songs was, Who Will Be the Zaidi of Our Children? Who will be the Zaidi if not we? We are the Zaidis of our children. We are this next generation. We're the ones that need to assure and guarantee that it continues. And for that, it takes the hero within you to come out. My closing story. One of those who went through the hell of the Holocaust was a man by the name of Chaim Shapiro. He survived four concentration camps, not to mention the squalor of the ghetto and the horrors of the forced marches. At the start of the war, he had a beautiful family, a wife and eight children. Within the span of a little over a year, he lost his wife and seven of his eight children without ever having the chance to even sit shiva for them. After the war, Chaim, along with his only surviving son, Baruch Shapiro, were liberated from Buchenwald. They wallowed in the DP camps for nearly three years 
until finally in 1948, they gained passage on an immigrant ship and they arrived in Israel. Well, you know what 1948 was in Israel. Soon as arrival, young Baruch Shapiro volunteers to fight in Israel's war of independence. It was a desperate battle for survival against overwhelming odds. He had no previous training. He was taken to a ravine, he was handed a rifle, he was taught how to shoot a few bullets, and he was sent off to war. Baruch distinguished himself in battle. He was part of Yitzhak Rabin's brigade. And while fighting to break the Arab siege on Jerusalem, he received a field commission as an officer and was awarded a medal for bravery under fire. One day, while sitting in his tiny living room in Tel Aviv, Chaim Shapiro glances out the window and he sees what no soldier's parents ever wants to see. He sees a delegation heading up the path to his apartment. They say that Chaim Shapiro opened the door before they knocked. They say that Chaim Shapiro never read the telegram that they delivered to him. He crumpled it in his hands, for he knew. He knew his last remaining son was also gone. With regard to the funeral arrangements, Chaim Shapiro made one request, that his son be buried in Jerusalem. The next day, thousands of mourners gathered on Mount Herzl, the National Military Cemetery in Jerusalem. None of them have ever known Baruch Shapiro. They didn't know his father, Chaim Shapiro. But they heard of this terrible tragedy and they wanted to pay their respects. Yigal Yadin, the IDF chief of staff at the time, the man who later discovered Masada, stood by Chaim Shapiro's side the entire time. What Hitler Yamach Shemai did not finish in the crematoria had ended at the hands of an Arab bullet the last of the eight Shapiro children. As the coffin was being lowered into the ground, a strange thing happened. Chaim Shapiro began to sing. And people thought he had completely lost his mind, and understandably so. Yigal Yadin put his arms around Chaim's shoulder, trying to comfort him. Someone ran to bring him water, but he shrugged them all off and just continued to sing. The crowd had no idea what to make of it until finally Chaim Shapiro looked at them and said, I have been through a hell the likes of which most people cannot imagine. I lost more than 70 relatives in a little over a year, including seven children, my wife and my parents. I have no place to mourn for them. There is no grave for them. They were turned into ashes flying over the sky of Europe. I have no idea why they died. But this son, pointing to the coffin of his son Baruch, I know why he died. He died so that we can have a home here in Eretz Yisrael. And he has a grave a grave here in Yerushalayim, in Jerusalem, the eternal capital of the Jewish people. That's not a reason to cry. It's a reason to sing. 
And when Chaim Shapiro finished speaking, he began to continue singing. He grabbed hold of the people next to him and he began to dance around the grave of his son. Thousands of mourners joined him on this day, singing and dancing against the setting sun of the Jerusalem sky. If any of you ever have the occasion to visit Mount Herzl, Israel's National Military Cemetery in Jerusalem, perhaps you can stop by the section where the graves of 1948 lie. And it is there that you will find the grave of one Baruch Shapiro. You look at his stone, close your eyes, remember the story I shared with you today, and you will understand why the Jewish people have never, can never, and will never be destroyed. That if there's one irrefutable truth of history, it's that I'm Yisrael Chai. My friends, as long as we remember the courage and the heroism of those who came before us, and we see to bring it into our own lives, we cannot ever, nor will we ever be defeated by any force, be it from without, without, or within. You see what is demanded from our generation are not these huge feats of heroism. The previous generation did all of the heavy lifting for us. Don't get me wrong, we certainly have our struggles to contend with and uphold battles to wage. But relatively speaking, we just need to do the small things, albeit in a more challenging time. For us, it's about change of perspective and habit that can have us leading much better and more meaningful lives. In a maddening, rushed world, small battles make mighty victories. Every action makes a difference. And you never know which small deed you do can have cosmic implications our small but hugely significant sacrifices can tip the world towards good and bring about the coming of Mashiach speedily in our days. Please visit myjli.com to learn more about JLI's multiple educational offerings and toracafe.com to view highlights and lectures from past retreats.